Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. As always, if you are looking to get your questions answered, you can head over to my Patreon page at the $20 a month tier and above. You get to ask a question on the monthly live stream. And also I have extra live streams over there and extra videos. There's also a Discord server. If you're looking for more support, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Katie Morton to go check it out. There are tiers to fit every budget. It starts at $1 a month, okay? Without further ado, let's jump into this week's questions. And question number one says, hi, Katie, I am terrified of getting better. I'm suffering from GAD, otherwise known as generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety, depression, and self-harm. I think the reason I'm afraid of healing is related to why I'm hurting myself. The scars show that I am sick and that I've been sick. The fact that they fade is like everything I've been through has never happened. They're proof of my pain. The same thing happens with healing. I don't know who I am without my depression or anxiety. They had become part of my routines. I got so used to living with them that now I would feel lost without them. What can I do? Is it worth it getting better? Thank you so much for what you do. I love your podcast. Greetings from Italy. This is a great question. And the truth is that for many of us, we can feel that our struggles define who we are and in some ways validate our experience. But the thing that's missing here and the reason that recovery is worth it is because you can get to a point where you don't need that validation anymore because you're able to offer it to yourself in a healthy way. Meaning that you're able to tell yourself, yes, that happened. Yes, it was bad. I felt, you know, the way that I felt. it was hard. I was sick. And I don't need scars or diagnoses or other people to prove that. Does that make sense? It's like you are validating your own experience. And that work to get to a place where you can validate your own experience is something that can be done in therapy, can be done through inner child work, it, can, it depends on where this stuff comes from, right? It can be done through cognitive behavioral therapy, otherwise known as CBT, because we challenge what the old thoughts are. The old thoughts are that the scars show that I'm sick. I would argue that the scars show we had no other way to cope but to harm ourselves. Also, not all scars are visible, right? We have internal scars. I could also argue that, you know, you, the proof of the pain is in your own experience and in your own memory. <clears throat> we don't have to prove it to anybody else, right? And we have to get to a point where we believe that. And that's going to take some of that internal work. Not to mention we're going to have to figure out who you are without your depression and anxiety, right? How do we define ourselves if we've been defining ourselves by our mental illness for so long? It can be hard. We might have to get to know ourselves again. And that can be kind of scary. It can be overwhelming. It can, you know, it's the unknown. So it can be uncomfortable. But take your time with this. I promise you it's worth it. Is this something that you want to feel for the rest of your life? Do you think it's worth feeling anxious and depressed and self-injuring for the rest of your life just to prove a point, to prove that you struggled, to prove that that's who you are? Do you really think that's who you are? We have to ask ourselves those questions and we have to challenge it. 
if we always think that who we are is our depression and anxiety, or that's part a big part of what makes us who we are, how do we go about challenging that? I usually get that question a lot, like, well, how do I even start with that? Do you remember a time before you had a mental illness? You may, you may not, but that's a good place to start if you have memory of that. Also, what else do you like? If you weren't so depressed or so anxious, what would you want to do? Think about that. Give yourself an opportunity to be curious about who you are and who you could become and what you maybe like and don't like. I actually get really excited about this part with my patients. I call it like the self-exploration where we journal a lot. I know, love it or hate it, journaling helps. But we journal a lot about the things that we might want to try. Maybe we want to try outdoor activity. We've always thought of ourselves as more of like a gamer or an inside person. We're not very athletic. But what if we tried, I don't know, hiking? Spoilers, it's just walking on a hill. So we try that. Maybe we like it, maybe we don't. Maybe we try training dogs. I don't know. Maybe we try learn guitar. Maybe we try knitting. Maybe we try coding. Maybe we try different types of food. Maybe we try to travel a little bit. Maybe we do all these different things to find out what we like and don't like and slowly get to know ourselves. And through exploration of our environment, as well as self-exploration through journaling, we can learn a lot about who we are and slowly develop a new sense of self that has nothing to do with our depression and anxiety. Because that's simply what we're struggling with. That's not who we are. And unfortunately, we can get really wrapped up in it, especially on social media. A lot of people I used to hate, I don't think people do it this way anymore, but I used to hate that people in their profile would put their diagnoses. And I was like, that's not really who you are, though. That doesn't tell me anything about you. Do you like, you know, I don't know, do you like anime? Do you like horror films? Do you like comedies? Like, what do you like? Do you enjoy to cook? Are you a mom? Are you a brother? Are you a sister? Are you who, who are you, right? Diagnoses don't tell us anything about other people. And so consider, even in your journaling, like, who are you? How would you describe yourself to someone else? What would be your character if you're going to write a character? What would that profile look like? Those can all be ways that we can do this kind of self-exploration because it is incredibly common for us to feel like our diagnoses are us and they're what makes us us. And I'm here to tell you they're just a small sliver of what we've been through and the way that our body and brain have reacted to it. It doesn't define us. It's simply, it'd be like saying that I'm defined by, you know, if I had diabetes, by my diabetes. You'd be like, what? Like in my profile, I'm a diabetic. I mean, maybe if I'm a diabetes advocate, but that doesn't tell you anything about me, right? So think about it in that way. Let's do some self-exploration. Let's challenge that a little bit. Um, Work on it in therapy, obviously, because these things served a purpose, right? We have depression, anxiety for usually some kind of reason. It could be simply genetic. That's fine. That has its own piece. But the self-injury is at least a way to cope, we know. And so what purpose does that serve? How can we work through it to recover? What would that look like? And how would we define ourselves after the fact? There was a comment on this that I try to run away from my BPD, my depression and anxiety, and I try to be quote unquote normal. It works for a little while and then everything comes flooding back. 
I'm scared. I start cutting again. How can I actually put my feet forward and heal myself? I see a therapist and I'm on meds and I have a good support team. Minus my family. Instead of running away or sweeping it under the rug. Gotcha. Um, yes, the trying to pretend to stuff it down and run away from it and pretend you're normal. Of course, it comes flooding back because you didn't process any of it. We didn't find other ways to cope. We don't have tools to manage the symptoms of our BPD, depression, or anxiety. So of course, it's going to come back. I'm glad you see a therapist. I think the best thing that I would encourage you to do is to find some tools and coping skills that work for you. Everybody's different. You guys know I do a lot of DBT, or I used to in my practice, dialectical behavior therapy. That's a uh, supposed to be one of the best modalities for the treatment of borderline personality disorder or BPD because it has a lot of emotion regulation skills, interpersonal effectiveness, even some basic self-care and like mindfulness techniques. It's got a lot of stuff in there. And so if you can find a therapist who has some DBT techniques they can offer, ask your therapist if they would mind learning with you. That can give you some tools and resources to better manage the symptoms rather than feel like you have to run away from them. And if you're on medication, like you said, you're on meds and you're not feeling any benefit, let your doctor know. The whole reason we're on medicine is for it to help us. And if it's not, then we shouldn't be taking that medicine anymore. We should look for other options, other medications that might work better with our system, right? Because everybody's different. But of course, you know, the stuffing it down isn't working. We can't run away from our mental illnesses because wherever we go, there we are, right? And I know that sucks, but we can work through it. We can come up with some tools and techniques that benefit us, help us better manage so that we can live a happier, healthier life. And I believe in you. You got this. I know it's scary. I know it's uncharted territory, but trust me when I tell you that it will be worth it. You're worth it. So stick with it, okay? And the question, the main question here said, how can I actually put my feet forward and heal myself one small step at a time? I believe what I would encourage you to do is to pay attention or maybe take note of the symptoms that you find to be the most distressing now. And let's start there. Let's say we're having panic attacks. Then we want to figure out how to address those. What are our triggers? How can we calm our system down? Let's say it's more BPD stuff. We find ourselves in splitting behavior, like thinking people are all good or all bad. Maybe, you know, we find ourselves being really impulsive, overspending, or maybe it's our depression. It's hard to get out of bed and do anything. What are the symptoms that are the most bothersome? And let's start there. And again, with that medication, if it's not helping and you're not feeling any better, then let's talk to our doctor about that as well. That's gonna, That could be a huge help, okay? There was another comment that actually, I have an add-on question. Could it be an indication of a personality disorder? The feeling like your mental illness is part of your personality, like it's been with you for so long that you can't remember life without it. I see where you're going with this, but no. The reason they call them personality disorders, which I actually hate that term, I think they should be called like pervasive disorders because that's really the truth. They call them personality disorders because they they last for a longer period of time. And there's something that can kind of linger in our life for maybe as long as we remember, but for just a long period. They're really pervasive. They affect a lot of different parts of our life. Like consider it this way. Like social anxiety is very specific, right? I don't enjoy social situations. I'm afraid I'm going to be embarrassed or people won't like me or something will happen where, you know, me getting out of there is going to be stressful and embarrassing and I can't get out. Those are the things that we think about. So it's very isolated. It's very specific. 
borderline personality disorder is like broader strokes. It's like I have this uh, intense fear of real or imagined abandonment. That can apply to tons of things in my life, right? So with that in mind, you can see why they call them. I don't, again, I don't like the personality disorder, but that's why they call them that is because they're a bigger part of our life. Um, You could argue they affect more of our life. And yes, we could say like, oh, it's part of our personality. I don't believe that. I think that's kind of a a stigmatizing statement because it, it kind of comes along with the thought that like, oh, well, then I just can't change. It's just part of who I am, right? And that's not true. It's just a more pervasive mental illness. And so, again, that's a great question. I think that this instead is an indication of a struggle with sense of self and potentially a struggle with self-confidence. And that's why we believe that our mental illness is like part of who we are and what makes us up. It could also be as a result of kind of like the stigma, people saying like, oh, you know, always going back to that. Like, of course you couldn't do that because you're depressed. You're always depressed. Like people could say that as if it's like part of what defines us, you know, unfortunately people can use terms in a, in a bad way. So no, it's, it's not really part of your personality or it doesn't happen because you can't remember life without it. It's, it's just the way that we have internalized our mental illness and essentially adopted it as that if that makes sense. Okay. Final add-on says, I totally understand this. I was abused and I feel like if I heal, then in a weird way, it's almost like saying that everything that happened didn't matter. The pain I went through doesn't matter to anyone else. So if I let it go, then nobody cares. And that feels so icky. Why do I feel like this? I hope this actually makes sense. It totally makes sense. And that's why it's important that we validate and acknowledge our pain and our struggles, our traumas, our whatevers, our experiences in life, that we acknowledge that and validate that ourselves. And that's also the beautiful part of being in therapy is because a therapist will do that with you. They'll show you how over and over time and time again in session, they're going to validate you. They're going to look you in the eye and say, that must be hard. And I'm sorry that you're, you went through that or that you're going through that. They're going to acknowledge you. They're going to hopefully help you feel seen and heard understood even. That's really important. And that's really what you're seeking. It's not, I know it feels like you're like, oh, you know, if I say, if I let go of this, then it's as if whatever happened didn't really happen or it didn't really matter. It's because you're seeking that validation. You're seeking that acknowledgement of the pain. And if we can offer that to ourselves and if we can receive that from our therapist, it can be incredibly healing. We could even write letters through journaling to ourselves, you know, younger us that this happened to. I don't know when, you know, the trauma or abuse happened. It could have been yesterday. It could have been 20 years ago, but we can, that's that inner child work, like listening to the person that we were at the time that we were abused and acknowledging what happened and validating that experience. It can be incredibly healing because unfortunately the outside world, us staying sick and feeling like shit doesn't make them acknowledge it any more quickly. It doesn't make them apologize. We can't control other people, even with our behaviors. I know we want to, and I know that's like a form of manipulation that we're trying on to try to get our needs met, but it's not going to, it's not going to get us anywhere. Instead, you know, it's better for us to acknowledge it for ourselves, validate it ourselves. And our therapist is a great kind of medium through which that can happen. Okay. I know that's hard to hear, but I hope you were able to understand what I'm saying and and why I'm saying that. 
Okay, let's move on to question number two. This question says, hi, Katie. I recently terminated with my therapist after two years. I felt that I wasn't making any progress towards my goals. And when I asked for feedback, which she has never offered, she responded, I can't work harder than you are. That's all she told you? Okay, we'll get into this. I understand and honor this concept, but I feel rebuffed. I would have too. If she'd been willing to engage in a conversation with me about why I was feeling this way or offer any kind of feedback, I would have been grateful and might have continued therapy. Honestly, it was devastating to realize I'd been in therapy for two years and, upon reflection, felt that I'd made zero progress or change. I was heartbroken. I told her this and she didn't offer any response. Sometimes she's very empathic and other times, nothing. It made me feel like a failure and also sad that I wouldn't continue seeing my therapist since it was clear it wasn't working. I felt like we were a great fit at first and on the surface that seemed true until it didn't. There were a bunch of other elements that didn't feel right to me either, but all of this has left me feeling like therapy is a hoax. I believe in it for acute trauma slash crisis situations, but for breaking old patterns and childhood stuff, it's been totally ineffective. This experience just reinforced a lot of old beliefs that were created in my childhood, like I can't trust anyone and that I have to do everything myself, including healing. Is therapy better for treating acute situations and conditions than it is for childhood stuff? How often should therapists and clients check in about progress? Should my therapist have responded to my request for feedback another way? Thanks so much for what you share. It's been really supportive during this decision-making process. Of course, you had a shitty therapist. This is terrible. I don't know what style of therapy they practice. Maybe it's psychoanalytic. Mm. I doubt it since that's not really effective. And we've learned over time, it's like too long-term takes to, it's just too, it doesn't, it's not really effective for people. But this lack of anything, no feedback, no response, no uh, empathy, no understanding. I'm so sorry. This isn't on you. This is on your therapist. Okay. So let's walk through a couple of things. First of all, asking for feedback when you're canceling your therapy is beautiful. I love that you did that. I don't think I've ever mentioned that before. I don't know if I've ever had a patient offer it. I offer it up willingly. I just never thought of it in this way. And I'm just so glad you did that. So I'm proud of you. However, the feedback should have been something like, I felt like we did really well with this, that, and the other. These are the ways that I feel like you've grown. Like, it's kind of like a, it's what I would call when you're going through termination, it's like a look back on all the progress you've made. Or maybe like, for instance, I had a patient I had to terminate with, this is years ago, obviously, but he didn't understand why. And he goes, I just don't understand. And I said, you know, you constantly lie to me you say you're doing the homework and you're not, you don't show up for your sessions. And I honestly just feel like you're not ready for therapy. And when you are, you can reach back out. And that was my feedback. I know it sounds kind of harsh, even as I'm saying it right now, you know, it might seem harsh to some of you, but but that's honest feedback. So if your therapist had something to say, she should have said it. She shouldn't say, I can't work harder than you are. She should have said something like that before this like way before two years like six months in she should have been like like with that patient of mine he was doing great and then wasn't and then I'd you know I'd feel like he was lying so I'd have to bring like his mom in because he lived at home and check in with her on how he was you know and that's how I'd kind of get the truth and he'd agreed obviously he was in those sessions it's not like it was a sneak thing at all but she can't just come out of the 
out of nowhere and say that. This should have been a, a consistent conversation. And if she feels like she's working harder than you are, then she should have said something like, are you sure you're ready for therapy? Or do you think you need more intensive treatment? Those are all potential ways we can kind of go with this. So that sucks and that's not good. And I'm sorry. Then as I move through the questions, you're asking, is therapy better for treating acute situations and conditions than it is for childhood stuff? No, not at all. It's helpful for both. And any therapist worth, worth their salt should be able to deal with both of those things help you identify patterns in your life that are no longer serving you and work with you to start the change on those, as well as help you manage a crisis situation, give you some tools to get you through so that you don't decompensate. We can do both. We're trained to do both. It's not asking for a lot, okay? So there's that. And then how often should a therapist and client check in about progress? To be honest, probably every six months or so. But I find myself doing it not so much as like a certain time period, but more like when a patient plateaus or is feeling unmotivated, or we've kind of come to what I think is like a crossroads. And we have to decide what we want to do next, right? Let's say we've already worked towards one goal and then we're trying to figure out what our next move is. That's a good time to check back in on progress. Okay, so this is what we worked on. This is where we got. Which one of these do you think is affecting you? So, you know, this is how we got here. Those tools worked. I think those tools lend themselves to this goal, but I think this goal might, you know, we talk it out. That's how treatment plans are put together. That's how we figure out, you know, how we're doing. And I do that, like I said, at least probably every six months, but whenever we come to a plateau, whenever we've reached a goal and we're looking for another one or in a crossroads in treatment, all of that is a good time to check in. I think checking in on progress should happen pretty regularly. It helps. It just helps. Okay. Then last question, should my therapist have responded to my request for feedback another way? 100%. A better response if this was, let's say I'm your therapist and this is happening and you said that you, you know, you're not making any progress towards your goals and you ask for feedback. Um, I don't know any of the specifics. So I'm just going to make some stuff up. A better response would be for your therapist to say something like, you know, it's been really hard. You've been struggling with dissociation, so it's difficult to keep you present as we work through these. Or, you know, um, the homework's been really difficult for you. And if you hear a ding dong, it's because Roxy's hitting her dog doorbell. Um, she was just out, don't worry. <laughs> but I could say something, you know, like, I, I feel like, um, you know, you haven't been able to do the homework or the homework that we're doing hasn't really been helpful. And I'm at a loss for where to go next. You have to own something, some things as a therapist too. Like, you know, the treatment and the goals that you're having, I'm, I thought I could easily help you work through it, but it seems like there's other roadblocks in the way that we haven't been able to push through. You know, there's a lot of different ways that you could navigate this as a therapist. And if a client's wanting to discontinue after two years, I mean, my question would always be like, well, what happened? So you're not, you feel like you're not working towards your goals. What goal? I don't know if you had a treatment plan, but as a therapist, I'd be like, well, this goal we accomplished, you know, I'd have proof of what we've done. And I'd be like, you know, were you hoping things would move along more quickly? You know, why do we think this was slow? I don't know. There's just so many other better ways to respond with anything other than I can't work harder than you are. That can be part of it. That's one component, but there's a lot more to therapy than just therapists not working harder than you are. Do you have a treatment plan? Do you have goals that you are working towards and you both are aware of them? Have Do you have uh, skills that you have accessed or a greater, deeper understanding for what you're going through? Like there should have been things that you've been moving along with, with her, and you shouldn't 
this is just shitty. She responded in a very, very poor way and not giving any, any feedback, not saying anything. It's, I don't know, that's just really, really frustrating. And it's not you, it's on your therapist. Sure, she can't work harder than you are, but that should have been a conversation, not an answer to feedback. And if, if she really thought that she was working harder than you, then she should have terminated you before and given you referrals to somebody different or a higher level of care or told you to come back when you were well, like willing and ready to work like I did with my patient. Like, I don't think you're really invested. But I brought that up because I'm aware of it because I'm a therapist and that's my job. Overall, I'm sorry that you're going through this. I'm sorry that that's what they said. I'm sorry that they aren't better at their jobs, but it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with your therapist. That should have been something they brought up. If they felt that was happening, they should have initiated that conversation well before you feel like you need to terminate therapy. Okay, let's get into the comments on this. It said, as an add-on, I stopped seeing my therapist two months ago. I have been with her for 14 months and I originally sought help to deal with PPD or postpartum depression. It quickly became apparent that I had childhood trauma issues that needed to be dealt with. The problem was she was not a trauma therapist. She pointed this out, but still agreed to keep me on. I was very attached to her and didn't want to change therapists as there aren't very many or the wait lists are too long in my area. Understandable. Over the course of the next 12 months or so, I was blind to the fact that she was actually making me a lot worse. Oh, no. But after 14 months, I had to end things. I'm proud of you. I was self-harming, restricting my eating. I was suicidal and was experiencing crippling dissociative episodes. The problem now is that I feel like since I ended things so abruptly, there are so many issues that were never dealt with. None were resolved. She just kept digging and digging and digging, but we never worked to resolve anything because I would get re-traumatized just thinking about whatever memory we were working on. Did she not give you tools and resources beforehand? (sighs) She also triggered something in me that I could not handle. I would sit in the waiting room shaking before the session and I would leave in a dissociative state. How can I get over the confusion I now feel about what happened? I feel like I have about a million open wounds bleeding from all the things we discussed but never got to finish talking about. I'm also very confused about our relationship. Everyone who has talked to her, my current support team as well as my husband, says she cared too much about me, but I didn't feel that she cared at all. I'm just so confused. Can I even work through this without talking to her about it? Okay, a couple of things. She's not, you said she's not a trauma specialist. Yes. That's very clear because she had no boundaries is what I'm assuming happened. She cared too much. That's why everybody around is like, oh, she cared too much about you. She didn't didn't know what she was doing, but she didn't want to leave you in the lurch without someone. And so against what I would say is better judgment, she continued to see you because I know you're saying like, oh, but I didn't want to end things. Sometimes that's not up to you as the patient. That's up to you, to the therapist. Like, if someone comes to me and they specifically need like, I don't know, ADHD or let's say autism spectrum disorder, they're looking for help with um, ASD. I don't specialize that. I don't feel comfortable taking on a patient that that's their primary focus. I would refer them out. I have a great colleague who treats that. So I would have referred out. That's what she should have done. Now I know you're like, oh, but the waiting lists are long. She could see you in the interim. I've done that for a lot of people where like I'll continue seeing them until that other therapist is ready to pick them up. That's fine. She should not have kept seeing you because what happened is she didn't know how to properly deal with trauma. 
she never gave you, I would assume, I'm, I'm jumping to conclusions here, but it does not sound like she gave you any resources or coping skills to help calm your nervous system down while you would do this work. Trauma work is hard. You have to at least understand that it dysregulates people. And so they're going to need some coping skills up front to help them soothe their system. Without them, what happened to you is going to happen. Where you, you dread the session, you feel overwhelmed, nothing ever gets resolved. You leave in a dissociative state. You have no way to manage all that's coming up from this. So of course you feel terrible. It's not on you, it's on her. She should have given you more tools, more ways to cope, more ways to soothe your system and calm down after, you know, talking about stuff. Not to mention just even the structure of a session. If you are dealing with trauma, there needs to be a come down time where you try to bring your patients back and make sure they're grounded. Although during the process, they should be grounded anyways, but making sure they're okay to leave. That's a huge thing. A lot of times when I have my patients who were going through something like this, I'd either put them right before my lunch or at the end of my day so that I had more time in case they needed a little extra time to calm down. Then I have that five or 10 extra minutes to spend with them. So all of that was not handled well. She was over her head and she should have referred you out. So, okay, so that's, those are my thoughts. And that's, and now we got to move into how you get over it. So how do you get over the confusion that you now feel about what happened? What happened was you had a therapist who saw you about an issue she doesn't know how to treat and she should have referred you out. And so, yes, you can work through all of this without talking to her about it. I would encourage you to reach out to another therapist who is a trauma specialist or trauma informed at the very least, because they can help you process this in a proper way, give you resources and tools to to manage, and they can talk you through the trauma of what that therapist did as well and help you process it quickly before it turns into another compounding trauma. Um, I'm really, really sorry that you're going through this. Of course, you feel like you have a million open wounds bleeding and you know never got to finish anything, never got to process anything. All of that is terrible. And like I said, re-traumatizing. Ugh, I'm so sorry. So you don't have to talk to her again. I don't think that's going to be helpful, by the way. But I would reach out to a trauma specialist, get on that wait list, and let's start that process, okay? And that's why it's kind of important that we find a therapist who actually can help us with what we're dealing with. And yes, therapists can read up on new anxiety tools for panic attacks or best ways to, I don't know, to help when we have ADHD, you know, we can take courses and we can get better. But if your therapist says trauma is just trauma, eating disorder, self-injury are so nuanced that it's it's best to find someone who is a specialist in that area because otherwise we can end up with doing more harm than good. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, hi, Katie, I feel incredibly lonely and behind in life. Every birthday, a new year reminds me of that. I struggle so much with birthdays doing, due to having struggled with my mental health for so long. It's been 14 years. I feel like I've lost so much of my life to it. I'm turning 25, never been in love or in a relationship, never been to a party, etc. I have one friend. I live alone and I'm still struggling and working hard to get myself to a better place. I want a partner and a relationship, but I'm terrified of men and physical intimacy, potentially due to childhood experiences. I just feel so stuck. Seeing both of my siblings in long-term relationships, traveling and building the life that they want. Suicidality gets worse every time, but I'm determined not to attempt again. My depression is better, 
I just feel lost. Do you have any ideas on how to deal with all of this? Yes. So it sounds like, obviously, our mental health can slow things down, just like anything, right? We make choices in life that can slow down our progress compared to someone else, you know? Um, Like I have friends who didn't get married until they were like 39, 40, and didn't have kids till they were 43, 44. I have friends who, you know, don't get married till 45 and don't want kids. Uh, I have had friends that got married at like 21. It's everybody's different. And you, it could be argued that I decided to go to undergrad and graduate school and that pushed off other things that I could have been doing, right? Some people would say, oh, she's working towards her career and building her life. Other people could say, yeah, she's wasting a lot of time not spending it with people building a relationship. Like I remember I grew up in a really small town and some of my friends from back home were like, how come you're not settling down? You're going back to school? Like, don't you want to have children? And, you know, because that was their timeline, their expectations. So I encourage you, I cannot encourage you strongly enough, stop comparing your timeline to someone else's. Everyone's is different. I know it sucks. It sucks to feel like we're lost, like left behind, but you're not. You're on your own path and your own route. That's why I love the quote, comparison is the thief of joy. It is. If we compare ourselves to someone else, it's always going to be different. There's always always going to be something that we want or that we should have done differently or I wish I was there. We should all over ourselves. Like I should be doing this. I should be this far. This should be happening. Our life is different and that's what makes it beautiful. So instead of looking out at someone else's and all the things they have that you wish you had, I want you to take a little time by yourself. I want you to journal about the things that you do want. What are the things in your life right now that bring you joy? What is it that you could see yourself doing for a living? We spend the most time in our life working. It should be something that we at least find somewhat fulfilling or enjoyable. So what is that? Tell me about it. What would it look like? Okay. Clearly, we want to have a partner in a relationship. So that's a long-term goal. That's something to bring up in therapy. This is a goal of mine. We might have to do some exposures. We might have to do some trauma processing. But if you feel like things aren't moving forward and you've been in therapy, you said for like 14 years or been open, struggled with mental health for so long. So I don't know how long you've been in therapy, but things should be moving forward. We should see progress. I do not believe that therapy should take us like 10 years. You know, we can still be in it for what I would call like upkeep, but we should feel like our relationships are improving. The goals that we have are being met. You know, that's really the true test of it, whether or not it's beneficial. It's almost like going to a doctor. You wouldn't keep taking a medicine if it wasn't helping do what it was supposed to do. Like, let's say, we have diabetes and we're taking a medication that's not lowering our blood sugar, you know, we wouldn't keep taking it. So keep that in mind. Um, But take some time to figure out what it is that you're wanting and the things and then the things that bring you joy in your current life. And what can we do more of? What those things that bring you joy, can we do more of them? Are there new things we want to try? Let's break down what feels like these huge goals that you put out in front of yourself Let's break them down by some little steps. Like, what's one thing that we love to do? And could we try to do that this week? Like for me, I'll give you some examples of things. So for me, the thing that brings me the most joy is going back to my yoga studio in Santa Monica. Obviously, I'm in Austin right now, so that's not so uh, doable. But let's say that it was. Let's say I was there. Then I would make time to go to that studio. 
feels good to me. I also love seeing my girlfriend, Joanna. So I probably call her and try to plan our next hangout. I'd plan some things with friends out for the next couple weeks. I like to have those social things like in my schedule. That makes me feel good. Then, you know, I do like to travel more. So maybe I start looking at what it would cost to go to Spain. And then how much would I have to save? And then how could I build up to that? Right? These are all like, I know they feel like larger goals, but we they're small to big and the ones that are bigger we can plan for. And how do we build up to that? Talk with your therapist about this. We should have some, in therapy, sometimes we have like therapeutic goals and then we have life goals. Sometimes those are the same, sometimes they're not. I would argue you have therapeutic goals that you've been working on, but we need to do those life goals and we need to give you a little bit of inspiration or empowerment where you feel like I have made change and things are better because you're only 25. You're not even 25, so I'm turning 25. You're still very young. There's plenty of time. Um, I met Sean right before I turned 25. And I was the first of my friends to meet, like who's now my mate. So don't feel like that isn't gonna happen. We've got time. Keep an eye on that comparison and let's start thinking about the things that are important to us. Because as someone who kind of goes against the grain, like I don't really do anything at the time that anybody else was doing it. I don't have a job that anybody else understood for a really long time. I... Yeah, it's you you have to do what's best for you and you have to figure out what that looks like. And then you have to slowly take small baby steps towards it. But you got this one thing at a time. You're not behind in life. And the loneliness can be relieved by putting ourselves out there and trying new things. So let's figure out what those new things are, right? You got this. I got faith in you. Keep me posted. Okay. Move on to question number four. This question says, how do I get myself to actually try coping mechanisms? I have a list, but they don't always help. Or I have this magical idea that they'll make everything better and then they and they don't. And then I resist doing them. For background, I have complex PTSD from childhood neglect and abuse and from an abusive marriage, currently separated. I'm glad you're separated. The way to try coping skills or coping mechanisms is to do them when you don't need them. Let's start doing them. And let's see which ones make us feel better now. Even if you're not in crisis and you don't really need them, that's actually the best time to try them. And what my guess is, is that the ones that you have on your list maybe don't work very well. I know you said that they'll, you think they'll magically make everything better and they don't, which obviously they don't, but you should feel some benefit. If not, we need to try something different. So hang in there. Let's give them a go. Let's try it when we're not in crisis. Try it today. That's how I know what makes me feel good. I do things when I already feel good and it makes me feel even better. Like I just said, like going to my old yoga studio, I talked about this um, in a video, I think, and even on here before where I was like giddy, like a little kid, like, like walking towards Christmas almost or something like, oh, I was so excited. And then I did it and I was like buzzing for the whole day. That was such a dopamine hit. And I was already feeling pretty good that day. So I tried it and did something when I already felt good. And I encourage you to do the same. And then with be ruthless with this list. Because I have that video, 25 Coping Skills. You can look up 25 Coping Skills, Katie Morton on YouTube. You'll find it. Um, be ruthless with this list. If, you, if one doesn't work or it's not that effective, it gets the cut. Cross it out add something else. There are tons in those comments, not to mention the 24 that I mentioned in that video. So let's create a list that works. And also just keep in mind that the coping mechanisms also have to be available at night. We at least need some that we can do at night. 
So let's make a nighttime list also. But being ruthless with that will help. And then another tip, and my final thing I'll say, is that sometimes we're too late to reach for these. So consider back the last time you, you know, should have used a coping skill, you think, or you tried and didn't quite follow through or whatever. What happened and how emotionally charged were you by the time you reached for that coping skill? Because the one thing that I find with my patients sometimes is that instead of reaching for a coping skill, when let's say they're like a four, right? Zero being I'm calm, I don't need anything. 10 being like, I'm in a panic attack, I'm dissociated, I'm maxed out. They won't reach for the coping skill when they're like a three or four, maybe five when they should. They wait until they're an eight and then they can't really do it. It's almost like we're not, it's not a time when coping skills are gonna help. At that point, we really need to just distract or we need to um, have somebody else help us distract. Does that make sense? And so- if we're going to try any like process-based coping skills, we're going to need to do them earlier on. And so part of that's going to be you doing your own personal research about the past experiences. When did you try them? How emotionally charged were you? Did we wait too long, do we think? Um, And this is not to judge yourself or to give yourself any shit for it. You're doing the best you can. This is just to greater understand when we tried and then what it would have looked like or could we have started using them earlier? And then let's try that next time. This is trial and error. We're running our own studies here. So try to use them earlier next time and see if that helps too. Okay? Okay. Let's move on to question number five. This question is, hi, Katie. My question is about when you as a therapist would suggest would suggest a higher level of care for a patient with an eating disorder, specifically over-exercise as a form of compensatory behavior. I recently started seeing a new therapist and she scared me by saying if there isn't progress, she would have to recommend a higher level of care. This made me feel scared to be honest with her as I only have had two sessions with her and I don't know what would be warranted for that recommendation to be made. Thanks for all you do for our community, of course. Okay, now ask her what this would look like because she's gonna know what she's looking for and what would warrant this higher level of care. Okay, please ask her. But I'm going to tell you how I work with this. Now, you've only had two sessions with her. I She probably said this as kind of like a part of her intake slash informed consent. I let patients know that if things aren't getting better and they're getting worse and I worry about their health and outpatient might not be enough for them, that we will discuss a higher level of care. That's the way I I bring it up. And I think that's probably what she means. Um, maybe she could have done it in a softer, more compassionate way, sounds like. But ask her what she means. When it comes to eating disorder treatment, our biggest concern are the medical implications. So having a patient pass out and whack their head on something, passing out while driving. I've had uh, patients who've had like tachycardia or like arrhythmias, AFib all sorts of heart issues because potassium and stuff like that messes with your muscles, aka your heart. Um, I've had patients go running in the middle of the night. Not, It's pretty sketchy in LA running at like two in the morning. Um, so there's things that, you know, we worry about safety, security, and physical health. And so higher levels of care allow for more of that physical health component, ensuring that we're getting, or more supportive food. Like I've had patients who, if they're just not following through with their meal plan or whatever their dietitian has recommended, then we need a higher level of care. So really for me, it's if we're not getting better and we're in fact getting worse, 
that's when I recommend a higher level of care more quickly. The plateau that I think she's talking about if she isn't any progress. So yes, if if my patients aren't getting any better, I would have a conversation with them about that and say like, hey, I feel like we're kind of just like spinning our wheels or treading water. Um, do you feel like you're able to do some of the things we're talking about to help move you forward? Or do you think maybe you need some extra support on that? Now that might look like more sessions with me, like twice a week, or that might look like a group therapy, or that might look like a higher level of care. The times that I definitely recommend higher level of care quickly is if a patient is decompensating and getting worse, like dropping weight or gaining weight or doing more and more of the behaviors. That's really what I worry about most. But ask your therapist because I think she just said this as a way to like make you aware, but we need more specifics. And so I would ask because that's your right to know. We don't want to accidentally like lose our therapist or feel like we're recommended a higher level of care and we weren't ready for that. Okay. Okay. Now there's a comment on this that as an add-on, I also want to know when they would hospitalize or encourage a higher level of care for increased purging and restricting. I have OSFED, it's otherwise specified feeding or eating disorder, which was mainly restricted with the occasional binge or, or low level binges. But about a month ago, I started purging and something I've never done, but it started now and I'm doing it a lot more. How bad is that? When does it become dangerous? Like how long does it take to cause heart problems, et cetera? Everybody's body's different. Could happen right away. Could happen in a year. You know, I feel incredibly alone in dealing with this. Not that I'm the only one going through it. More that I have to manage this without my friends and family. I have an amazing professional support network. It's just not quite the same. I don't know why it got bad so quickly. For reference, I also have complex PTSD, numerous sexual assaults, emotional neglect, and verbal abuse from my mom and the rest of my family were mostly absent. Major depressive disorder and anxiety. Okay, so the real question is, um, when would you hospitalize or encourage a high level of care? It's no different. If you're, and honestly, because this is getting worse, something has triggered it. I'd argue that there's some extra stressor in your life. Again, I would either think you need extra sessions right now, or maybe we need inpatient or hospitalization to get you back to a more stable place. Because if a per, if a patient of mine is still purging each and every day, that's a little worrisome for me because of dehydration, electrolyte imbalance, uh, potassium levels, all that stuff can get really scary. And I'd rather have them um, with some more supportive care. Like I said, you know, uh, if I if I think I can manage it, if this is a short lived thing, it's only been going on for like a week or two, maybe I'll try my hand at helping them better manage it and doing some check-ins, stuff like that. At the same time, maybe considering two sessions a week or looking at treatment programs and getting them in and, you know, doing those intakes and stuff like that. So I would, based on what you're telling me, I'm leaning towards you need more support because something's happened. Something's triggered this. We're, we're using our eating disorder more to cope because I think there's something that's happened and we feel like we need to cope with it. And maybe it's because we're finally trying to work through our traumas. Remember eating disorder, when we go to get help for it, can get worse before it gets better. Um, but that might mean that we need more support to get us through. But there are options, you know, inpatient hospitalization, uh, extra groups, extra sessions, all that stuff. Um, yeah, I feel like I've answered the question. You let me know if not. Now it looks like, okay, we have two more add-ons. Now this add-on says, Katie, can I prevent an eating disorder before it starts? 
we can have coping skills, yes, and we can find ways to healthily communicate how we're feeling, what we're going through, and that can alleviate the need for an eating disorder. Remember, eating disorders are used as ways to cope or control something else that doesn't have to do with what's really bothering us or what's really um, maxing us out, okay? It says, I have dangerous medical conditions that are requiring me to take laxatives regularly, eat differently, and go on lots of types of physical therapy and do a lot of home exercise programs, as well as monitor my body in a variety of ways. I have no eating disorder behaviors and no body dysmorphic perceptions. However, I acknowledge that because of the gravity and the danger of the complications of not taking care of my medical conditions, that there is a possibility that the management to prevent things like um, ischemic stroke, I don't know if I'm saying that right, hopefully, vital reflex suppression in my sleep and further GI paralysis, etc., has some level of risk of becoming obsessive that I'd like to be able to keep an eye out to or um, eye out for or to keep in check if such obsessions were to start because the gravity of failure to manage the conditions adequately is obviously high risk with those very serious complications that I just listed. And I'm interested if you have any ideas of parameters to consider putting in place. Obviously, I'll check with my doctor if I can safely implement those parameters. Love it. Um, as check as self checks to be sure that I'm not starting an eating disorder. By the way, I'm managing my conditions to be sure that I'm not starting an eating disorder. Um, oh, wait, sorry. Managing my, to prevent all of those other serious medical things. Sorry, I lost my place. Like, are there questions that I can ask myself and boundaries I can put into place from the outset of management that can help me distinguish from the start of an obsession versus beneficial self-caring necessary behaviors and thoughts? If I notice thoughts and behaviors are more of an eating disorder type or an obsessive thing, what is the boundary what are some boundary behaviors I can do instead to prevent it from becoming an eating disorder? Okay, um, it says, how do I disengage with very real worries and thoughts that could come up to help motivate the pro problematic excessive behaviors that are quote unquote for my health or following the doctor's protocols? Okay, we've got it. So the, the truth is that eating disorders exist as a way to cope. And because this could be incredibly stressful with your complicated health concerns and health conditions and the things that you have to do preventatively to keep yourself alive and healthy. Um, that could be really stressful, overwhelming, and could mean that you're looking for ways to cope with that stress and overwhelm. And so my biggest encouragement and my, my best advice as a way to kind of uh, ensure or deter ourselves from starting any eating disorder behaviors is to find ways to cope that work for you. Talk to people about what you're going through. Be honest, be open, communicate. All of that will keep that an, an eating disorder at bay. Because if we don't give ourselves a reason to cope unhealthily, we won't do it. It's not like um, just because we have some things going on with our GI tract and things we have to do medically that we will develop one. It's great that you're asking this question because the way that we prevent it is by working on ourselves and expressing what we're going through and talking to people about it and getting support because that in and of itself means that we're not avoiding the stressful or uncomfortable things that are happening and we're not giving our brain and body something that it that we like aren't coping with in our life and we it's trying to find another way to do that does that make sense 
It's like eating disorders thrive in the secret. They thrive in the stress and the overwhelm, in the suppression of emotions and experiences. They thrive in the lack of connection. They thrive in isolation. So if we go against all of those things, if we communicate clearly about what's happening, we tell people what we're going through, we talk about how we feel, we connect with others maybe going through the same or just people in our support system. We connect with people in general. All of those are great protections to kind of put in place. And I don't think of it so much as like boundaries or limits. I don't want it to be rigid. I want you to listen to what your doctors have like need you to do. I want you to do those things. And in the meantime, I want you to journal. I want you to talk to people. I want you to ask if there's a support group that you could join. I want you to get more emotional support so that you don't feel alone with it. Therefore, we don't feel an urge to find a way to cope. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay. Another add-on, I think it's the final add-on from this. It says, in addition to this, when do you feel that residential and IP or intensive, um, we call them intensive outpatient programs, IOP, um, and IP programs are truly helpful? I was put into a residential program when I was not at all ready to recover, which made me feel the program was more harmful than beneficial. I declined while I was there and was threatened daily with NG tubes and intensive programs across the country which only scared me more as someone with PTSD who knew that these consequences would, be put, would put me in triggering situations. The strategies they used on me were ineffective, but out of fear, I eventually gave in and did what they wanted to physically reach a place that my team was happy with. Fear-based treatments never work. I'm so sorry. The issue was my only motivation was to get out, not to get better, which meant that I was incredibly secretive, purging in residential daily, learning my meal plan and the supplementing system to figure out how to hide food, exercise in secret, etc. Oh, all the bells and whistles. Yep. My trauma symptoms were ignored. See, that's the fucking crazy part. That's messed up. That's uh, the crux. That's out of the root. That's what they should be working on is actually your trauma symptoms. And the food is kind of like peripheral. It's like a symptom. It's a coping skill, right? Ugh. Okay, so trauma symptoms were ignored and got worse, of course, but I was told I was faking panic attacks and trauma episodes to burn calories and they wouldn't talk about it with me. What in the... Now I'm in a better place, but the only reason I got here was because I abs- I'm absolutely terrified to go back. This has created an environment where I feel like if I'm struggling, I can't even tell anyone. How do you gauge the harm versus the benefit of programs like residential and IP? What signs do you look for in patients and how much do you consider their own desire to go into a higher level of care? Um... <clears throat> you went to the shittiest plan program place I've ever heard of. I've never heard of things like that. I'm sure treatments differ from state to state, city to city, place to place. But what in the world? That is terrible. Every place, I mean, I've only worked at three eating disorder treatment centers, but the places that I worked at, well, I guess one was a hospital and then two were more residential, like in homes. The goal was always to work on the real root of the problem. And then the food was kind of ancillary, although it was controlled and you did, you know, have to eat and do all these things to move up the levels and not be discharged as someone who's not ready for it. Um, That scare tactic, I mean, shit, that's terrible. So in my mind, there's no harm in residential or IOP or PHP or any of our programs. There's no harm in it. There shouldn't be. The harm is in the fact that we might waste time and money when we're not ready. And so I do factor in 
if my patients are ready for recovery or not. However, I will throw out there that because eating disorders can mean that we are dangerous to ourselves, right? We're like kind of slowly killing ourselves potentially if we're under eating in any way. If that's a piece of the puzzle, then I may have to hospitalize a patient in order to keep them alive. I see that as more of a 5150 type of a situation, even though it's not technically what that's called, but it's, I guess it could turn into that. But anyways, I would see it as more of that kind of a situation versus what you're talking about, which is going into like a program, like a treatment facility. And that means that the patient has to at least be somewhat ready. Like with my patients, I feel like nobody's ready to go into residential. Nobody wants to get better. But what I always ask my patients is, do you hate how it is now? And if the answer is yes, then the only way out is to do that. Does that make sense? And so that's kind of where I start. Um, But it should never be dangerous. I don't know. This is so sad to me that this happened to you. I'm so sorry. Um, The benefits of those programs always outweigh the cost because I haven't had, I mean, I've never seen a place that does stuff like that. So that that's really, I'm so sorry. So to answer your last question, what signs do I look for in patients? Um, and how do I consider their own desire to go? So the signs I look for again are if they're not doing well and like deteriorating, symptoms are getting stronger and worse. That's a sign they need a higher level of care. Um, or if we've been plateauing and we both agree like, hey, I think we need a little more oomph and seeing me another session isn't enough. I recommend a higher level of care. And then their own desire is if they're on board for that, like there's a process to getting in, at least in the States, you, they have to call and do an intake. And then I usually send over some information, obviously have them sign a release. You know, they have to pack up, they have to get there. There's a lot of steps in, involved they have to pay their deductible or whatever cost um, to get going. And so all of that is going to factor in and that all is connected to their, how much they want to go. Right. You know, I can't like chain them up and force them to go into something like that. Okay. Again, I'm so sorry that happened. That's, that's terrible. And like I said, being feeling forced to recover for fear of like, just wanting to get out of there. I'm like, Ooh, I would encourage you to find a trauma specialist, a therapist you can see on the outpatient basis and get to work on that trauma stuff because that's, what's really holding you back. That's what your eating disorder attaches to. So let's work through that. Okay, let's move on to question number six. This question says, hi, Katie, I have a question about EMDR. If you don't know, that stands for eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. That's essentially like the the buzzers in our hands or the following uh, finger, things like that. I'm finally starting in August. Yay. But I am so scared of actually really facing my trauma head on in therapy. I don't even know how I will tell or write my therapist what happened, but he told me in our getting to know each other session that he needed to know at least partly what happened. I can't even say or write the words. I'm just terrified of the time. Oh, the, of the time that is to come, especially because he said it's possible to start remembering things that I'd previously forgotten. Do you have some words of encouragement for me? Of course. Okay. So if you guys don't know, I'm in my own EMDR treatment right now for uh, grief is the main crux that I'm working on. And I will tell you that there are a ton of uh, sessions and steps before we get into the reprocessing. And during that time, we're going to build up resources like ways to calm your system down. They're going to talk to you about 
some coping skills and some things that we can utilize. And do you have a happy memory? They'll have you try to think of some happy memories too, so that you have that to pull on. And that's upfront. That probably took me like three sessions to get through that. Then we move into kind of a timeline and they'll use some of the happy memories to to blot in there to like boop, boop, drop those in um, along with some of the things that are a little more uncomfortable. Now, you don't have to move into these big traumas right away. We can talk about things that were, you know, moderately uncomfortable. For instance, um, instead of feeling like you need to talk about like full-on abuse or for me, instead of having to talk about like the loss of like my papa or my grandma right up front, instead of doing that work, we started talking about, um, what was it? I'm forgetting some of it, but it was like a times when I felt really dysregulated, like in high school and in middle school, when I was really having a hard time just personally, um, when I was up in Seattle for a semester, because I had to drop, I don't know if you guys remember this, but my mom's father was uh, like paying for with like a loan for my first year at Pepperdine. And then he withdrew his uh, support right before my second year started. So I had to withdraw for a semester or actually, I think it was just a semester. Maybe it was a full year. I forget. Either way, um, I had to go to community college in Seattle because I didn't want to lose my progress until I could apply, fill out the FAFSA and apply for student loans because I had no loans set up. And so that was a really hard time. So those are some memories that she's pulled on for me that aren't like the real meat of what we're going to get into but they're, they're things that cause dysregulation and upset in me. And so know that that's kind of the way that it progresses. You don't have to go faster or farther than you're ready to go. You might be surprised what comes up and what you're able to talk about. I find personally that I'm really surprised at how my memories are connected to each other. And we'll start talking about one, like there was this really stressful um, Christmas Eve where we went to my grandma's and like people were fighting. It was just a, dis- it was a, a difficult time with my family and not, it was like a, a four on my list. It was like, oh, I don't like arguments. And that was really uncomfortable. It was that kind of a thing. But the way my brain took that and went to like 5,000 different other memories was just mind boggling. And so just know that you might not have to start with that big memory. You might not have to go into details right away. You might start with something that's not as charged. That's how mine has gone at least. And that from what my friend, Dr. Alexa Altman says, is kind of how EMDR is supposed to progress is, you know, you slowly build up. And again, those resources and that resource building is really, really key. And those happy memories have been so helpful for me to kind of come down from the emotional charge and to feel okay and and somewhat regulated after this after the session i will tell you in a word of advice is don't have anything going for the you know after your session don't book yourself up for the rest of that day because it can be really exhausting and it just depends sometimes i feel that way sometimes i don't just depends on the session probably depends on how intensely we're getting into things but i just want you to know that that's usually the pro the process that i've experienced in the process my um, good friend who practices emdr with her patient says it goes So don't think that, don't get ahead of yourself, I guess, is my advice. You've got this one thing at a time. Take it one session at a time. If it's too much, it's okay. Maybe tell him from the beginning, be like, if it's too much, can I just put my hand up and give you like a signal that it's too much? Because I might not be able to speak. That could be helpful too. Because as you feel yourself kind of building up, you can be like, and that's a good stop. You know, it's a good way to let him know. Then he can like, 
pull you out, calm you down and give you time so you can leave and not be dissociated or overwhelmed. Okay. But don't feel like you have to rush and don't feel like you have to talk about things you're not ready to talk about. That's not how it works. That's not the goal. The goal is to work with you, not against you. So just do your best. Be as honest as you can in the moment. And if it's too much, let's let them know we need like a little stop or a pause. Okay. There's a comment on this as as an add-on, my therapist said I may benefit from doing EMDR. There's one thing though that's stopping me from saying yes, that I would, um, oh, I would have to see another therapist to do it. For context, I've been seeing my psychologist weekly since February this year and things are going great, but I'm aware that I'm becoming quite attached. I have sexual abuse in my history and have recently discovered that I have a disorganized attachment style. I always have had a person whom I felt attached to, often teachers at school, but now I think it's my current psychologist. I trust her deeply, which is hard for me to do, and I would like to try EMDR, but I'm scared that I'll become attached to my therapist doing my EMDR and will lose my current psychiatrist or psychologist, sorry. Not to mention that I'm just generally scared of becoming connected to my trauma and remembering things. I have this weird disconnect with my trauma. My psych did reassure me that we wouldn't cancel my current treatment plan with her, but I may have a break from seeing her. Yep, I've done that before with patients too. It sounds stupid, and I'm terrified of voicing this out of fear for being dropped or rejected by her. What do I do? Am I weird for being attached to my therapist? Any insight would be amazing. Thank you for all that you do. No, you're not weird. It's incredibly common, especially when we have trauma, disorganized attachment. We can be looking out into our world to fill the void that our primary caregiver, usually our parents, one of them, or both, left. So if they didn't fill that void, we're trying to find someone who can. And therapists almost always get pulled into that. Now, let's check our facts. Because when we feel threatened, this feels emotionally threatening to you. You're like, I'm too attached. I'm going to lose her. But she said you won't. So we got to check their facts. She said that you won't. And she said that you just might take a break while you see somebody different. Because also why I don't find that we need EMDR and talk therapy to be running simultaneously. It's, you can, but I think that it is, it can be beneficial to do one and then come back together and finish with her later. EMDR is shorter term. It's not like you're done in like five sessions, but let's say six months to a year. So you could take a break from your current. It might even be healthy for you to do that, to let her know, hey, I I felt kind of attached and I know that I do this and I know this about myself. And so this is stressing me out, but it might be good practice to have someone who's consistent, who you disconnect from for a little bit and then come back to. I know that sounds really uncomfortable, but we can't change without a little discomfort. And I might push you to try that. But You're not going to lose your current therapist. You'll still have her. Um, You're just trying a different style to kind of help you with this. And it might help with the attachment too. Who knows, right? Um, But yeah, um, you're not weird. Being attached to your therapist is incredibly common. I have a ton of videos about this. You can probably just put into YouTube like attached to therapist Katie Martin and you'll see all the different videos I have about it. Um, There's some people who have crushes. Some people who think they wish they were their best friend or their mom or whatever, it's usually out of trauma. So it's a normal response from what you've been through. Um, Your therapist will know this, but I do think going to do the EMDR could be incredibly beneficial and help you work through some of the things you feel kind of stuck in regular therapy. I had tried talk therapy for years and years. I've been in therapy off and on since I was 15. I've spent like most of my college experience in therapy Um, and it was helpful, but 
I felt like I needed something different. And so I'm trying EMDR and I find it to be really beneficial. So give it a try. Know that, remember to check your facts. Don't let your worry thoughts run away without you because we know we're not losing our current psych. We know that we can come back to her, talk to her about this to help assuage those fears. Let her know I'm worried. I don't want to lose you as my, my psychologist, you know, essentially how can we make this work? I know I struggle with attachment. I don't want to be too attached. I think this might be healthy for me. You know, talk it out. It's okay to be honest about where you're at and what you're thinking. Your therapist isn't going to judge you, isn't going to push you away. I know you have all those fears that you're like unlovable or not enough or too much or whatever, but allow her the opportunity to prove you wrong. Okay. Okay. Now there was another add-on. It says, My psychologist, who I've been seeing for six months, has been encouraging me to see a psychologist in the same clinic that does EMDR. Beautiful. I've only been able to write surface level experiences with my childhood sexual abuse and domestic violence as an adult. I cannot speak about it. Before I begin EMDR, my current psychologist wants to work with me to build up resources. Love it. Because my window of tolerance is so low, I shut down completely and dissociated even the most minimal mention of my childhood. Would EMDR help or will I never be ready? I really feel like I'm never going to be ready and I'm a failure and I'm too broken. Look at those shame thoughts. They're not helpful. I don't want to waste anyone's time if I can't be ready. I'm extremely fearful of doing something I've never done before as well. You and me both. I had no idea what EMDR really was. Like I can read about it and tell you guys about it, but doing it is so different. Now, your therapist is doing what she should be doing, preparing you so that you can participate in EMDR. Now, EMDR could help you. Just like any therapy, I can't say, yes, it's going to be beneficial. It's going to help. It could. It sounds like it has a potential to do that and getting you to a place where you're not so easily dysregulated and don't shut down or dissociate is going to help you either way. Expanding that window of tolerance is going to be life-changing. So let's keep doing that work that's really important. That's going to help us in everything, not just EMDR, in life. So I'm glad your therapist is doing that. You're not too broken. It's hard for a lot of people. What you're going through is incredibly common. Nothing's wrong with you. You're just doing your best to manage all you've been through. Give yourself a little credit. You're reaching out for support. Look at you. You're going to maybe see somebody for EMDR. That's awesome. One thing at a time. Right now, we're trying to work on building our resilience, aka opening that window of tolerance so it's getting bigger and bigger so that then we can actually participate in EMDR and get the benefits from it. I think it could be really, really helpful for you. We just have to get you to a place where it can be, and that might take a little time, but will you never be ready? Nope. We don't have facts to support that. That's silly. Of course we'll be ready. I don't know how long it's going to take you. I can't say it's going to be one session, five sessions, whatever, but you'll get there. We just have to find ways to stop the shutdown to help us cope. We need different skills, different tools. We need some happy memories maybe to rely. Maybe mention that to your therapist. Say I was you know, listening to this podcast and they said sometimes happy memories that are really strong, um, you know, you can tap those in. So you could even probably do that with you. You tap those in, but you can just also recall them and she can know how to kind of trigger that memory to kind of pull you out. It's helpful when you're talking about something difficult. Okay, you got this. It's always scary to try something new, but you know, if we don't try new things, we'd never learn new things and we never know how beneficial something could be. So remember how scary it was to start therapy in the first place? It's been so long ago for me, I sometimes forget, but I have to be honest, even like finding a new therapist when I moved to Texas, it took me a while and like wanting to do it and I kept putting it off. You know, it's hard, it's stressful. (sighs) 
but give yourself some grace and keep working on it. It will get better. Okay. Okay. Question number seven says, hello, Katie and Kenyans. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. Says, what if I don't see a reason to stop self-harming this time? Context. I began self-harming when I was eight. It wasn't my go-to coping skill. I really didn't become interested in it until high school, but it continued into adulthood and was becoming concerning. I wanted to stop because I didn't want my husband to see or have to explain my scars to my kids. Now I know my husband's not going to say anything. He'll just be be there more steadily. Children are not a possibility right now. I gave up self-harm a few years ago because my therapist told me if I didn't, she wouldn't work with me anymore. That's not helpful, but we'll get into that. I see someone else now and she is more open to it. I feel like a bad client because I had quit for the last therapist and now I can't. What are your thoughts? Okay. First of all, a therapist saying that you have to stop or she won't see you anymore isn't helpful. That doesn't actually treat anything. That's like weird therapist manipulation or not blackmail, but I don't like that dynamic. It's very unhealthy. I'm sorry that they did that to you. That just doesn't work for me. And it's really bothersome for many reasons. Number one, because we're not working on the root or better understanding why you're still self-harming. There aren't any there's no compassion or understanding. It's like a line in the sand. I can understand a therapist saying like, you know, if you if you keep decompensating them and I have to refer you out to a higher level of care, that makes sense. Or if you continue, you know, with these suicidal thoughts and potential attempts, I'm going to have to recommend you a higher level of care. But to say that she won't work, I, it just, that's not helpful. That's not healing. That's not therapeutic. I really hate it a lot. I'm so sorry. Um, But the reason to stop self-harming would be because it doesn't make things better. Let that sink in. We often think that by self-harming, we feel better, things are better, look at me go, nobody really cares, what's it matter, I'm not hurting anybody else. Is it helping? Even keep track, I've challenged my patients to this a lot. Okay, you're going to self-injure, I want you to track how, how long you feel good about it. How long does it make you feel better? How long before the buildup of the urge to do it again starts? All of those questions are really important because for some reason in our brain, we think, oh, this is helping and it feels good. And if it's not hurting anybody else, what's it matter? Those things aren't true. Let's check our facts. Sure, it gives us a thing to do and we feel a little bit better for a little bit of time. Usually, I would say the average is we only feel better for about two to three hours. Maybe not even that. I had a patient who was like 30 minutes. And then after when she'd have to like clean up her wound or do whatever ritual she had around the self-injury, the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment started to sink in. Now, that's might not be your experience, but I challenge you to that. And I would hope that just considering the fact that it doesn't really help would would encourage you to find things that will. Because the thing about unhealthy coping skills, whether it be eating, self-injury, addiction, drugs or alcohol, spending, shopping, whatever it may be, those just mask or numb us out from the real thing, the real problem, the root of the issue, which means that we're still having issues in our life. Maybe that means we can't have sexual intimacy. Maybe that means that we can't really tell people how we're really doing. 
Maybe that means that we're secretly super depressed. Maybe that means that we, you know, can never sit in a place with our back to the door because it's too overwhelming. Our hypervigilance is too intense. I don't know what it means for you, but that means when we can't stop the self-injury, it's because there's still some reason that it exists. It still serves a purpose because we're still in pain in some way that we haven't acknowledged or processed. And I would argue your therapist from before wasn't the best. So we might need a little more support from our current therapist to figure it out. You're not a bad client. You're using the coping skills that have worked for you because we haven't been able to replace them, nor have we been able to heal the real root and the real reason that they're there in the first place. Does that make sense? So be patient with yourself. You're doing the best that you can. We don't need to stop self-harming for someone else. We need to stop self-harming because it no longer serves a purpose because we've healed whatever wound it was trying to cover up. I hope that helps. Hang in there. It does get better and it does get easier. Okay. Final question. Question number eight says, Katie, I want to ask you a question, which is personal, but I just asked this with curiosity. It says, why in therapy do you not want a religious counselor? Have you been harmed by church people or is it a personal decision? I recently went through some personal church trauma and have struggled to reconnect after this. I've been in therapy for over two years. How do you get back to the place of trusting the community? So I'm fine sharing this and it is kind of personal, but you guys know me like if it's helpful, I'm happy to share it. Now, I am not religious personally. I grew up in the church and I found it extremely suffocating and anti-woman. Now, this might be my own personal experience in church. So don't let, don't, I don't want anybody to think that my experience has to be yours and that you have to argue in the comments about why it's important to you. You have, you do what you want to do. I have nothing against church or religion. It's not for me. Only me. I'm only speaking about myself. You do what you want to do, okay? Now, growing up, if you don't know, I was a child of the 90s. I was born in 83, which means that I was like eight years old by the time, you know, it was 1991 or, you know, like that's when I started to form long-term memories around the age of five. So that'd be like 1987. In the late 80s and the 90s, there was a thing known as purity culture. Um, And it swept through my church where... You weren't supposed to, as women, mind you, not the boys, as women, you were supposed to uh, save yourself for marriage. And if you didn't, you were made to believe that you were lesser than, that you were like dirty in the eyes of the Lord, that you weren't uh, worthy of a good husband. Um, That was what was preached to me. I was also taught that like cursing would mean I'd go to hell, drinking alcohol would mean I'd go to hell. Um, that boys got to do what they wanted, but women need to be subservient. We needed to give in to our husbands. We needed to be like passive and easygoing and do what they want. It's not who I am. It did not jive with who I believe myself to be. It doesn't uh, correlate or anything with what world I want to be in. And so as soon as I turned 18 and I went to college, I went to a Christian university, I know, as you all know, um, I went to church a couple times and I just hated it. It just wasn't for me. I don't like the messaging in that way. Um, it's not something that I feel is helpful. I do like, I've even talked to Sean about this, like growing up, I'm glad that I grew up in the church because it kept me kind of safe, kept me out of trouble. I didn't sleep around. I didn't drink. I didn't do anything like that, but I did work my ass off to get the fuck out of there. So, um, yeah. And also I got this message too about like, 
you know, uh, praying to help with things. Even though my mom still took us to counseling, my mom wasn't raised in church, even though she went because she, when she met my dad, she met my grandma and she started taking her to church and my mom loved it. Um, at least she still held on to the fact that she took us to like a real therapist, although it was a Christian counselor. Um, we'd pray before our sessions and everything. And I really just feel like there's the, the messages that I received and I'm saying that to say like the way that I heard things in church and the way that I digested them and kind of, I don't know, it's not like translated them, but it's like the way that I heard them are not messages that I I believe in. They're not things that I think are helpful. And in fact, I felt them to be very hindering, especially in my early like romantic relationships, super toxic for me to think that I couldn't have a voice and that I'm supposed to do X, Y, or Z. And this makes me like a, a good woman of God. And that that's just my experience. So I wouldn't, it, you could maybe, I, I just don't feel my, like myself in, in therapy. I've talked about this a ton. I don't feel like it's trauma, but religious trauma is incredibly common. Um, any religion that tells you that you shouldn't seek out real professional help, that you should only talk about it within the church is not healthy. Any, uh, person in church who's in a position of power who yields that to make you do things that you don't want to do is religious trust that's abuse it's not helpful it's not healthy um it's a very precocious is that the right word precarious that's the right word it's a very precarious thing religion and church and it's just not something that i want to be a part of um I think of it as a means to control people versus letting us be who we want to be. And so that's why I don't want it in my my counseling decision. That's why in the South, now that I'm in Texas, even though Austin's not really like the other parts of Texas, but that's why I purposely made sure that my therapist wasn't religious in any way. Um, but again, th- th- those are my beliefs. That's my experience. Yours is different and that's okay. Don't feel like my thing has to do anything, you know, has to be in line with your thing. Um, that's just my thoughts. That's my experience. That's what I grew up with. And that's why I really don't like it. And I don't see a time in my life when I would go back to it. Um, I have considered over every so often over the years, like having a relationship with God that's just my own. It has nothing to do with organized religion. And that, I think that's more of spirituality. I think that's why I enjoy like yoga so much and psychology even as a whole, like getting to know ourselves and getting in touch with who we are and like spending time in that. I find that to be much more beneficial for me and so much more incredibly healing. But again, that's my my take. And you're completely, you know, obviously encouraged to have your own take. Don't think that mine has to in any way, you know, impede upon yours or something like that. That's just not, that's not my intention. So I'm sorry that you have your own personal church trauma. Um, I have a video about religious trauma. I'm happy to dive into it more. There are a ton of things that we could talk about with regard to that. It's more common than I think people realize or than people want to talk about. Especially, I can even be honest, growing up in the church, it was kind of like you just thought that what they said went and that was what it was supposed to be because it's like faith. You know, you're supposed to just blindly believe things. And and I'm not saying that that's necessarily what they preached overtly, but that's the message I received that like what they said was what went. And I don't know, it's, it's very complicated. And it's, it, I think I felt like I was in a very vulnerable position growing up and that was taken advantage of. And so that's not nice either, you know? 
So how do you get back to a place of trusting the community? I think finding, for me, it'd be finding um, either a church or a way of practicing your own faith that feels real to you. Um, the community piece is a huge component. It can help us feel like we have a place, we have a home. And so maybe try out a different church, you know, find a different one and be slow about it. You know, don't, you don't have to get super, super involved right away. You can get to know people. You can kind of get a gauge for things. You can notice what they say in the sermons and what people say like, yeah, praise you, you know, people like talk about and get excited about notice if those line up. Um, but before going back, do some internal research, be curious about what's important to you and what what it was about that last experience that was upsetting and maybe some red flags you didn't notice at the time but you can see them now that can all help like helps you have more information so when you go back out we were a little bit more informed and more prepared to protect ourselves and make a good decision versus maybe ending up in the same situation okay i hope that helps i know it's complicated again i don't want anybody to think i'm judging them that's not the goal that's just been my own personal journey um, and the reason why I am not religious today and did not want a religious counselor. Okay, thank you all so much for sending in your questions. Thank you for watching and listening. Please share this podcast. That really does help and leave reviews. That helps as well. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye. Katie.